Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Follow the money. That's what we're doing on the Gegen Pod today. Extraordinary circumstances with what's happened at Manchester City. And Kieran Maguire, football finance expert, is our special guest. He joins former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen and soccer is icon Mark Schwarzer as we talk about Chelsea's massive spending, Newcastle's business model, and what's going on with the sales of Man United and Liverpool. Plenty of other stories in the Premier League too with Jesse Marsh, the latest managerial casualty. We'll check in on it all. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Gegenpod. Yes, it is all about the money on the Gegenpod today. We have a very special guest joining us, the author of and host of the podcast, The Price of Football, Kieran Maguire, and he's joining former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen and soccer is icon, Mark Schwarzer. Kieran, it's great to have you on the show to offer us a unique perspective, and I understand that you are a man in incredible demand worldwide right now, given what's going on in Premier League football. Uh, yeah, I've just come off BBC uh, Arabic. Um, I've done Norway, Denmark, CNN, and uh, 20 UK stations and a couple of islands as well. Uh, yeah, f- football and finance should, shouldn't be a topic. Uh, we, we, we don't fall in love with with the game due to uh, amortisation, but uh, they seem to want somebody to talk about it at present, given the machinations at Chelsea and Manchester City. Well, what better place to start? I'm going to throw the floor open to Thomas and Mark to actually ask you the questions about what's going on with Manchester City. Mark, let's start with your perspective before we get into quizzing Kieran about what it all means, because it was an extraordinary bombshell the way that the Premier League broke this news. A huge, absolutely huge bombshell. Um... I mean, I think for for some people, obviously, knew there was some ongoing investigations going on, but I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams ever thought it would be as dramatic and as serious as it seemingly is. Um, um, And I think it's taking quite a long time to digest. I mean, I certainly haven't digested anywhere near uh, enough of the information um, since it it was released. So um, let's hope... It gets sorted out sooner rather than later. I mean, what the repercussions are going to be, what the actual um, penalties are going to be, only time will tell. But I'd be, I'd be very interested to hear what Kieran's take is on it as well, um, moving forward to to see what you know what he thinks the the possible ramifications can be or will be likely. Well, there's 115 charges. Um, the Premier League has effectively said that. Manchester City has misrepresented all of its or a significant amounts of its accounts for a period of nine years. So it's a long accusation of deceit. And I think we, we can probably narrow it down to, to two core areas. First of all, City have been overstating the money that's coming. Um, so they, they've got sponsorship deals from the likes of Etihad. And the accusation is that... Uh, the money was actually coming from the club owner. And and the problem with that is it doesn't count towards FFP if it's from the owner. So it's been disguised as sponsorship income. 
then when it comes to uh, wages, the accusation is that uh, Roberto Mancini was on a, on a salary of 1.45 million sterling um, from Manchester City. But he had a consultancy arrangement with another club based in Abu Dhabi who were paying him 1.75 million for four days work a year. And the Premier League are saying, well, hold on, yeah, that's, that's not a realistic uh, arrangement. That's actually disguising Mancini's wages. Uh, and I think they've done something similar with Yaya Toure and his agent in terms of how the fees have gone there. Um, and then the third element of the charges is that Manchester City have obstructed uh, the Premier League in terms of its investigation. The investigation started in 2018. Um, and that's part of the reason why it's taken over four years to, to reach the point where um, it, it released charges. I, I understand that Manchester City are very, very angry, however, because normally you would be given a heads up that something is going to be released and nobody at City knew what was going to happen until it appeared on the Premier League website. You know, I, 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 for me, I think this, this whole issue is, is something that, that really shakes it all to the core. I think... You know, what, what makes football great is that we believe in what we're seeing on the field, that what we see is true and, and that, you know, to some extent that it's fair and, and we all play by the same rules. And, and, and by these things coming out, you know, that, you know, can we believe anything uh, <laughs> that we're seeing? You know, if, if, if clubs and especially the top clubs, the, 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 the you know, the, the bearers and, and the, the clubs that we all look up to, I think... Um, you know, if if they're doing these sort of things, uh, it puts the whole game in disrespute. You know, so, and you know, the fans are, are paying their hard-earned money to go and watch this. Uh, you know, everyone who's involved, who's employed in football, I think, you know, so there's so much at stake here. Uh, you know that um, you know if it is as as bad as it's <laughs> laid out to be, it's it's a huge thing. Yes, I mean, lots of people have commented that. How can Manchester City's commercial income be 20% higher than that of Manchester United? And that's no disrespect to Manchester City. Yeah, they've been magnificent on the pitch. But uh, if, if there's not a level playing field off the pitch, or if people, at least if people are not playing by the same rules, you, you can see a loss of faith. We, we've seen what's happened in, in Italy with regards to Juventus and, and the 15-point penalty and the whole board of directors have had to walk away and people have been banned from football. Yeah, the likes of Agnelli. What's going to happen to the, the director of football at, at Spurs as well because of his involvement? So um, when, when we get a final resolution to this, either the board at Manchester City would probably have to resign if Manchester City lose the case. If they successfully defend it, where does that leave the Premier League? Kieran, is it... Um... It's kind of strange. Like you said, normally the club gets a heads up from the Premier League. Why do you think that's not the case in this in this in this instance? And is it because maybe they think there's such compelling evidence to say that they're they're in big trouble, they're in deep water, um, or, or what else can you think why they would do what they've done? Um, and do you think what do you think the overall outcome might be? Well, I, I think looking at your first issue, Mark. Um, the relationship between Manchester City and the Premier League perhaps is not a good one. Um, there's certainly been a lot of lobbying from other clubs, especially the bigger clubs, um, in terms of uh, putting pressure on the Premier League to, 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 to progress this. 
that there's another issue here in the UK at present in that um, the UK government were due to release, they were due to publish a proposal to uh, instigate a, an independent regulator of football. And this was on, on the basis of a of a, a fairly long drawn out process where a, a lot of a lot of fan groups, lots of owners of smaller clubs as well, um, they, they were unhappy with with the governance of the game. Um, the Premier League is opposed to this. The Premier League wants to re regulate itself, and I think the timing is no. It, it's more than a coincidence, in the sense that. Now the Premier League can say, well, look, we, we're trying to put our house in order. The fact that we're prepared to take on not only the Manchester City, who are our present champions, you know, that they are our flag bearers, they are, they are shareholders, they are stakeholders in our game. Um, and also that they've successfully defended themselves against accusations from UEFA. Well, we're still, this, this is a sign of just how good we are at the Premier League. Um, in order to try to persuade members of parliament that when it comes to a final vote, that there's no need, or at least there will be a very diluted version of the proposals to have an independent regulator in the, in the, in the UK game. Yeah, Kieran, do, do you think it will stop here? Because we've obviously seen you know, plenty of owners coming in. Todd Bowley at Chelsea, we saw the, the Saudi Arabia consortium taking over Newcastle. You know, there's talks, obviously, the sales of United and, and Liverpool to prospective uh, Middle Eastern or American owners. You know, is, 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 you know, is there other people that need to look over their shoulder or, or how do you see it? Well, I think from an investor's point of view, all of a sudden I'd be slightly nervous, especially if I was thinking of, of buying a club. Um, if something like this could happen, which could effectively destroy the value of my investment, and people might not be aware that 17% of Manchester City is owned by um, a, a US investment house. Um, so, so Abu Dhabi United have sold um, a, a, a large, you know, a significant proportion of, of Manchester City or the City Football Group to a company called Silver Lake. You can imagine them being absolutely furious at present. Um, in, in terms of are there other clubs that could be under investigation? Well, we did see, for example, um, Everton claim that they had 190 million sterling of COVID losses and other clubs were reporting losses of 60 or 70 million. So why is it that uh, Everton have got three times the value of the COVID losses? And I, I'm, I was aware that both Leeds and Burnley were thinking of launching effectively a private prosecution against Everton had, had they been relegated. And in the end, they decided Leeds stayed up and, and they lost enthusiasm. Um, I think Burnley, um, that they were getting nothing positive from the Premier League. But for all we know, the, the Premier League could be investigating this. We've just had the, the Chelsea uh, spending uh, splurge, although in my view, that's within the rules. So uh, increased scrutiny could certainly be the case going forwards. And again, that might be part of the reason why we've got both Liverpool and Manchester United presently up for sale. So uh, before we get to Chelsea uh, and some of the other Premier League powerhouses, I just wanted to ask about that independent regulator uh, and perhaps that process might be pushed back by the Premier League showing they can keep their house in order. How would you assess the desire from fans for fairness and regulation versus the sort of the power of global brands and teams 
and their fans from around the world, just wanting them to be as strong as possible. And the, the, the truth is on the pitch. The 11 that get there, they don't care how they get there or how they're paid to get there or how much it costs to put those 11 players together. Do you think there is actually a bit of an ideological tug of war between competitive balance measures and just let the best assemble themselves however it may come to pass? Oh, certainly, it, it, it becomes a very tribal issue and it, and it depends upon which team that you support. So we, we've seen Jurgen Klopp, we've seen Liverpool fans saying, we feel that we are in an, a disadvantaged position because when they look up, they see Chelsea. Chelsea, was, Chelsea lost um, over 900 million uh, sterling on, under Roman Abramovich. Uh, when, when Chelsea played Manchester City, uh, two years ago in the Champions League final. Those two clubs were the biggest loss-making clubs in Premier League history, and yet they were being rewarded by having the, the flagship match of, of the European uh, football regime. So those fans tend to be resentful. If you talk to a fan of Newcastle, they say, bring it on. You know, they, they, they don't want any regulation. They, they, they'd happily scrap financial fair play today. Um, and that's because... An awful lot of fans are hypocrites and not, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's because if somebody flies in who is a multi-billionaire, who is a sugar daddy, and that's what fans are looking for because fans, fans want more money spent on their club. If it loses money and those losses are underwritten by somebody, well, the fans don't care. They, they just want to see the best on the pitch. Um, the danger is what happens at some point when the owner's circumstances change, and, and we saw that with Roman Abramovich at, uh, at Chelsea. We've seen that at other clubs as, as well, where, where the owner's business has gone bust. Or what happens if the owner says, actually, I'm, I'm bored. You know, I've, I've got this expensive executive toy, and I've just realized how much it's cost me. I, I've got friends that own racehorses, and they say, the best two days of owning a racehorse is the day that you buy it and the day that you sell it. Well, you talk to football club owners and they'll often say very similar. Kieran, what, what do you think the actual outcome will be with Manchester City in this instance? Do you think they'll be relegated? Do you think they'll be expelled from the league? And I mean, we're even reading some reports that the EFL then might decide that they wouldn't accept them in the competition. I mean, I, I just find that really hard to believe that would be a possibility. I, I think relegation would be unlikely. Um, because if the Premier League were not going to sanction its members for setting up the Super League and effectively threatening to reduce the value of the domestic game, then picking on one club and relegating it um, does seem much harsher. And, and, in, and in my view, the Super League was a far bigger threat to the Premier League than Man Manchester City, if they've done wrong, they've, they've cheated, they've, they've broken the rules, and a points deduction would appear to be the logical um, uh, tariff, because a financial penalty isn't going to be of any detriment to the owners. So it, it then says, well, you know, how much should this points deduction be? Should it be 15 points? Should it be 30 points? Should it be this season? I, I can't see the commission reaching its conclusions by the end of this season. So does, is it that Manchester City starts next season on minus 15, minus 25, minus 30 points? But surely they can't win the league with this hanging over their head. You know, if they get themselves in a position, I mean, that, that 
How, well, how is that going to look? It, it's, it's, it's going to look awful, which again goes back to, to why has the Premier League waited until February to, to make this decision? So it, it, I think politics has overridden sort of the sense. The logical time would to do it is either to do it at the end of the season or to do it in the summer um, so, so that everybody knows where they stand. And, and that also, of course, has an impact upon on players as professional athletes. Do you want to join a club with this cloud hanging over its head um do you do you feel uneasy as a professional because you are are you guilty by association you know are, are, in terms of of the sins of, of of others at the club um and therefore the timing has made things made a difficult situation worse um you're absolutely right if, if they end up with the highest number of points this season then it could become farcical if during the summer the commission reaches a conclusion and says either A, you're going to have a points deduction at the start of the 23-24 season, or B, we're now going to take 15 or 20 points away. Because they've already had the, the open bus tour that you know, Arsenal fans have already, you know, would if they, if they don't win the Premier League, they'll already be frustrated. Winning it that way would be awful. We've seen we've seen clubs though in the past have titles stripped. So it, I mean, look, if the worst case were to happen, obviously it's all hypothetical at the moment. But you know, you, you, we've seen it in the past. Clubs have had titles strip, stripped. That they have. I mean, if we, if we look to see what happened in Scotland with Rangers, they they ended up with a with a demotion, but they didn't have the title stripped, except in the minds of Celtic fans. So it, it really is a case of how severe are the nature of these allegations? Yeah, what, what are the numbers involved? Um, and has there been a, an attempt to effectively pull the wool over the eyes of the Premier League on a long period of time by Manchester City's executives? And therefore, the Premier League says, we don't think that you deserve anything from the period in which this this mis- misfeasance was taking place yeah no I, I just wanted to, to again touch on on the titles because you know you you know I lost an FA Cup final to to uh, Manchester City in 2011 Yaya Torre who is involved scored uh, not that I want uh, any winner's medal from it but but again yeah I think it you know there, there's a there's a big argument for you know, like we've seen with Lance Armstrong in other sports where, you know, you actually, you know, cut in where it hurts. That's points deduction, taking away titles. I think, you know, instead of a financial, uh, you know, penalty, I, I think those things are where where the committee should look. I think if they're found guilty, we, we still have to, to obviously make that uh, <laughs> comment. So, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. Yes, I mean, a, a financial penalty would be laughed at by by everybody. The Manchester City fans will laugh at it because they know that the owners will be unaffected. The the fans of other clubs will think it makes a mockery of the whole process and, and the process has taken a long period of time um, and therefore you know other other fans and you've only got to look at social media um, in terms of the the very very vehement opposites that fans are taking. Um, if, it, if it's just financial, I don't think the, the commission would, would have a lot of credibility in the eyes of, of anybody and, and they would be laughed at by the, by the fans of Manchester City. So it, it would have to be 
more severe than that unless it, it happens that Manchester City are cleared of 90 of, of the uh, of the charges and, and the only charges that stick are that they didn't particularly cooperate with the Premier League in, in exactly the way that we've seen with the, uh, the, the issues with UEFA, where in the end Manchester City were cleared of the charges um, which led to the initial two-year ban by UEFA, but were effectively found guilty of not cooperating with UEFA and they ended up paying a 10 million euro fine on the back of that. Although City have argued all along that UEFA had been uh, leaking to friendly parties in the media um, the progress of, of the case against Manchester City and therefore they decided to stop cooperating as a result of that. You did touch on Chelsea and you said that what they're doing you believe is within the rules. So I need to ask, are they just years ahead of the curve do they have the financial means to take this sort of a risk? Uh, is it purely a, a faith investment that the players will not simply become like another Chelsea past player, Winston Bohada, and if they're not good enough to play, they'll collect their wage and Chelsea will be uh, on the hook for tens of millions a year for players they don't want anymore? Explain to us why Chelsea are within the rules and do you think they are setting a precedent that other clubs will inevitably follow? In my position as, a, as an accountant... I'm pretty certain they are within the rules and it's due to the unusual way that we treat football players as assets is that if you sell a player, all of the profit goes into the calculations immediately. Um, and if that player has come through the academy, there's no transfer fee as well. So the, the sale of the player is, is pure profit. So if you take a look at Chelsea in 21-22, in they sold Mark Guehi, they sold Tammy Abrahams, they sold Figama Tomori, and they probably made around about 80 to 90 million in sales and profits at the same time. But when it comes to buying a player, the cost of the player is spread over the life of the contract via an accounting method called amortization. So if you sign a 100 million player on a four-year contract, that works out as 25 million a year. What Chelsea have done is said, well, you know, normally when you recruit a high-profile player, it will be a four-year, perhaps a five-year deal. But they've said, no, we're going to go eight, eight and a half years for some of the people that we're recruiting. So 100 million spread over eight years reduces the cost for financial fair play purposes to 12 and a half million a year. That's, that's the good bit from Chelsea's point of view. The risk, as, as you were uh, intimating, was that if the player is not of a Chelsea standard or if the player, for whatever reason, just doesn't fit in um, you know, due to the style or the culture of the club or whatever, then you've got a player who's on a Chelsea level of wages. Now, there's, there's not many places to go up from Chelsea. You know, it, it, Chelsea are right at the top end of the, the wage market so then the player has to make that decision as a professional. Do I sit out the next six years on a salary which I will know will not be matched elsewhere? Or am I prepared to take a pay cut? Or do Chelsea go to the player and try to come up with a financial settlement to try to encourage him to leave? That could be very, very costly. You could end up with, given the number of players that Chelsea have signed, you could end up with four or five players for whom they're on the hook for the next four to five years, six or seven years in, in some cases, and they're not getting a return because the player's simply not going to be on the pitch. Um, you know, I, I wasn't even aware that, that Victor Moses 
was at Chelsea until around about six months ago. He was, he was one of those players that came and I thought he I thought he'd been sold years ago. And, and, and then you find out they've got they go out go out on loan. The in in the case of of Danny Drinkwater who who went to Chelsea from Leicester, uh, Chelsea was sending him out on loan and paying a hundred percent of his wages. So it can work out as very expensive for the club if the relationship doesn't work out between the two parties. Let's move on to Manchester United because there have been some headlines about the Glazers being potentially interested in a sale, but they have brought in a name, uh, the media, to the conversation who has appeared a couple of times on other club sales in the past, Sir Jim Ratcliffe. And so my question, Kieran, is... Is Sir Jim Ratcliffe the go-to billionaire to make it seem like your club is about to get sold? Or is this actually genuine? Um, my understanding from Manchester is that Manchester United and the Glazers are very unhappy with uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe uh, waving his hat around saying, I'm the guy to buy the club um, because... I don't think the price he's willing to pay is, is anywhere near what the Glazers are looking for. Everybody else is behaving uh, in a more private matter, a private manner, and dealing with uh, the Rain Group, who are the the organisation who sold Chelsea on behalf of Roman Abramovich and the UK government, and they would much rather that negotiations and offers took place behind closed doors. So, Sir Jim Ratcliffe is the richest man in the UK. Um, he has made his money through being smart and by not paying too much. Uh, he's got involved with, with French football and I think it's fair to say the results there have been mixed. Um, so whilst he might be emotionally very attractive to Manchester United fans because he's from the area, he used to go to Old Trafford as a kid, you, you can see the the attraction from a fan perspective um i think there's a little bit of mischief from from his part and uh he's either trying to get a a, a discount or he's actually just trying to get a bit of publicity in exactly the way that uh, he threw his hat into the ring in respect of chelsea kieran have you got any inf- inside information in terms of or knowledge um are manchester united close to anything is there any genuine buyers out there that you may feel that Manchester United could be sold uh, sooner rather than later because obviously the relationship between the fans and the Glazers, everyone knows, has been, let's just say, a real roller coaster of a, a, of, of a ride for, for everyone concerned. Um, I don't think, from, from the people I speak to, that there's a huge amount of interest at the price that the Glazers are looking for. So either they have to accept something which is more realistic and um, there's no doubt that the Chelsea sale um, was a catalyst for both the Glazers and Fenway Sports Group in terms of putting those clubs up to see see who was going to bite um, on any normal business valuation model. You would not pay 2.5 billion sterling for any business which had lost a million a week for for 19 years. So. Under those circumstances, that both Manchester United and Liverpool are run on far more sustainable business models, you would expect them to be sold at, at a much higher price. But it could be argued that Todd Bowley and Clearlake 
they got it wrong and they overpaid for Chelsea, especially given that realistically, if they want Chelsea to compete as we go forward in, in some form of financial fair play regime, they either have to move from Stamford Bridge because it's only got a capacity of 41,000 or they need to do what Spurs have done and knock it down and replace it with something far bigger. But Spurs is in an area of London which isn't that desirable. Chelsea is. The problem you've got, obviously, with the, 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 the difference with Chelsea is that, as I understand, is if the club wants to move, they have to have an agreement with the, the fans who own the pitch. Is that right? And if they don't come in an agreement, they lose the name. They have to change their name. Is that correct? That's, that's absolutely correct. Um, Ken Bates, who was a, a former owner of Chelsea, I think it's fair to say he was quite a controversial person. But the one thing he did, which was really in the interests of the fans, was that he divided the Chelsea pitch up into one metre squares. And he then sold all of those squares um, to individual fans. And no, person, no one fan is allowed to own more than 10. So it's impossible for the, the ground to be sold unless you get the approval of Chelsea pitch owners who also own, as you rightly said, Mark, the name of Chelsea Football Club. So that means that whatever happens going forwards has to meet the approval of the fan base. Um, and, and this is actually where you know, owners can do something which I think meets the approval of all the fans. And it could be that the fans will say, Actually, we don't mind moving because it is going to be to a 60 or 70,000 capacity stadium and the transport links are going to be better and we're still going to, we're going to call it the new bridge or whatever and, and, it, and uh, they see the benefits. But at least they will have some input into the, the destiny of Chelsea as to whether they stay at the present location or they move on. So if I was to ask you, Kieran, uh, if you were a buyer, which club do you perceive to be more valuable? Is it... Liverpool or Manchester United, factoring in, of course, the global commercial reach, uh, also the established names of the two brands. What do you think is actually the better investment? I think the better long-term investment would probably be Manchester United because they they have had more titles in more recent years. Um, The advantage of Liverpool is that under the Fenway Sports Group, they have redeveloped the ground. Yeah, they get, there's capacity of Anfield is going up to 61,000. Uh, in respect of Manchester United, I, I think it's now it no longer qualifies under UEFA rules to host um, finals because the the the, the quality of uh, the, the infrastructure there simply isn't up to to the, the high standards. So whoever comes in would have to again. You know, in terms of what we've just been saying in respect of Chelsea, realistically, they'd have to knock down Old Trafford and, and build it from scratch. And, 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 and Manchester United could sell out 90,000, 95,000 every week um, if, if you take, go down that route. If you try to build a bit like a, a, you know, a Jenga or a Lego model uh, in terms of what, what we have already at Old Trafford, it, it will start to look very messy. So I think Manchester United would be more expensive but on a long-term basis, it's probably got um, a greater return on that investment. That's not to be critical of Liverpool because Liverpool have come from 
a place where the club was in crisis. You know, it, um, under Hicks and Gillette, the Liverpool Football Club was a complete mess, and, and Fenway Sports Group have progressed it. But I think the the ceiling for Manchester United is probably higher than that of Liverpool in terms of commercial appeal. And, and Kian, do you not think, in in regards to you know, there's been talks about you know a sale price of six, seven, eight billion pounds that you know for for the Glazers to you know the, you know to sell the club with the stadium in mind, the infrastructure, and that going forward, the expense of that, of, of that. Do you not think that in case they're moving that price to to a more you know, attractive uh, area that, that it's going to be really difficult to sell uh, despite, you know, the massive money machine and, and the, you know, the, the equity that, that is at Manchester United. I, I agree with you totally, Thomas. I mean, the, 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 the Glazers, I think they've got a little bit greedy uh, following the Chelsea sale saying, well, yeah, we're, so much, we're such a bigger club than Chelsea that we can get two and a half, three times the price of Chelsea. But Stretford is not the same as the West End of London. Um, so from a property point of view, the, the value of, of the land there is, is lower. Um, and although you can make money, you can make more money on a match day basis at Old Trafford, um, there has to be a ceiling for that as well. And you know, the Glazers have come in for a lot of criticism. One of the things which I think they could be given some credit for is that they've not increased season ticket prices at Old Trafford for the last 10 years um, because the local fan base has, has a ceiling as to what they can afford. Now, it could be that Manchester United, say, under the new owners, said, well, we're going to get rid of some of the old fans or if we do expand the stadium, it's all going to go to football tourists who are far more lucrative. But then that means that the new owners will have a toxic relationship. They'll effectively inherit um, from the Glazers. I, I don't think Manchester United is worth that, but we, we have a, a saying in business, there's a, what's referred to as the bigger fool theory in that you only need one person who's prepared to go and pay that price. And, and we've seen that with you know, the likes of cryptocurrencies and so on, where uh, it doesn't appear to be anything particularly sustainable about it. But if you, if you sell it well enough, then you'll find somebody that will pay pay the money um, you, and you only need one uh, and, that, and that's what the Glazers are hoping to find but they don't seem to have found that person yet. Uh, Kieran do you think uh, Liverpool are in a better shape at the moment or anywhere clearer or nearer to a sale um, as opposed to you know just what you mentioned about Manchester United the price is it's overpriced? Well um, certainly speaking to uh, people I'm connected with um, Fenway Sports Group are probably only looking for a 10 to 15% sale of Liverpool. Uh, they've, they've, they've tested the market. They've not really got a, a big response at the high levels of price. They paid 300 million for it from Hicks and Gillette. If they sold 10% of it, they could get their 300 million back and, and effectively have the best of both worlds in that it's effectively therefore a zero cost to the owners and they still own 90% of the club. Um, going forwards in football, the type of things that owners are looking for, which is a smaller Premier League, which would allow for you know, an 18 team, ideally 16 is, is what they, they would like. Um, that would mean more lucrative tours, more expanded European competitions, which are far more lucrative. Um, to have 90% of that coming in would be very beneficial for those elite clubs. Although for 
what you might call the mid-tier clubs, the likes of Aston Villa and Leeds and West Ham, it would be an absolute disaster. Kieran, one thing we want to finish on is to leave the Premier League briefly, but talk about a team that is very much looking up the football pyramid, hoping to be there one day, and that's Wrexham. Now, they have captured the imagination with their celebrity owners, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. Uh, Certainly, uh, the documentary and the Hollywood element has brought unprecedented attention to Wrexham, but how much do you actually believe the club to be worth now relative to when it was purchased as a result of their unique ownership model? Wrexham with uh, Reynolds and McElhenney are worth a lot more than without. So I think the problem is is that inherently the club is not worth a large sum of money. Uh, I've been to Wrexham as a fan. Uh, I've had great days out there. But it's not a a wealthy area of the country. Um, Therefore, the ability to to monetise it comes through the owners rather than the the club's inherent value. Um, I think the owners, if they committed themselves to, a, to, a, to a, a new bidder, they say, well, we're going to stick with Rex and we commit ourselves for, for 10 to 15 years, then they could sell a proportion of the club at a higher price. But if they were to say, we're looking for a full sale, I, I don't see any value there because the, the additional commercial income, there's no way that TikTok would be, the, the, or uh, Aviation Gin would be sponsors of Wrexham Football Club were it not for the two owners. So, if you end up separating them by selling the club, you've got a problem. Kieran, I was going to ask you, uh, out of all the football models we've seen, ownership models, whether it's in this country or whether it's abroad, is there any model that you think is underutilized, something that would fit the Premier League really well or even English football clubs? I mean, I'm a big fan of German football. I'm a big fan of the model of fan ownership, minimum 49%. Some clubs have 100% ownership with fans, and it's also proven to be successful. Union Berlin is a great example right now, currently in the Bundesliga, um, of 100% fan ownership. Is, is, do you see that potentially coming into the UK? I, I think it's highly unlikely. Um, and, and the reason for that is clubs of that nature have a natural ceiling because the clubs have to break even. Now, in, in order for that to work in, in, in the England, in, in the UK, first of all, you would have to deal with, with the championship. And in the championship, on average, clubs last season paid £120 in wages for every £100 in income. So, so therefore, they were already losing money before you put the floodlights on. They were already losing money before you went into the transfer market. And therefore, the only way that those clubs could survive was having owners who were prepared to subsidise and, and underwrite the losses. We do have some fan-owned clubs in the UK, and at League One and League Two level, I think there is a place for them. Above that, you simply you don't have the resources in order to A, to compete in the championship. Once you get into the Premier League, things might be slightly easier, but I think the championship itself is, is such... Uh, a challenging, toxic mess um, in terms of the losses which are being made that uh, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't work in English football. Should that that should be a priority to change, right? The championship because you know this is where you're going to have problems with ownerships, with owners then running out of money, clubs going into financial difficulties. If you're continuously trying to rely on a on a wealthy owner to back your club, 
surely something's got to change that they they do align more to a kind of a, either a fan ownership or it's certainly breaking even sustainable method I, I i agree with you absolutely mark in theory that's what you would hope the owners would want to do but here's here's the here's the problem the club's breaking even where the club is in eighth position in the championship and we get to the january transfer window the manager goes in and say look there's this striker he's going to cost us a few million um his wages are higher than we're paying the rest of the squad but i'm convinced he'll get 12 goals between now and the end of the season get us into the playoffs and, and then we're one step from the premier league and the owner says here's the money and you only need that to happen once or two to one or two times before it creates an arms race so should we have regulations to prevent that yes but the 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 championship owners themselves have voted to not have a wage cap they voted to to not reduce the level of losses that they they're currently allowed to have under the the efl's own um cost control rules so do you think the Wrexham model is one of one? Do you think there could be copycats? And, I mean, Mark's asked you about one type of uh, ownership model. Do you have a preferred realistic uh, ownership model, Kieran, that you think could be replicated further down the football pyramid for those ambitious clubs, even if it is simply jumping from non-league to the championship rather than necessarily from the championship up to the Premier League? Um, I, I think a benevolent dictator, somebody who has the best interests of the club at heart, who also spends money smart rather than spends money full stop. Um, If we take a look at Brentford, Brentford have got a a 20,000 capacity and that's their new stadium. The old one only held 12,000. They managed to get themselves from League One through to the Premier League through having a a player spotting model. They, They didn't have an academy. They had a B team. They picked up kids at the age of 16 or 17 in London who had been jettisoned by Chelsea and Arsenal and Spurs and so on, and, and they developed them. Um, they used data analytics. So it, it's, it's a case of being perhaps a little bit different, um, having a long-term strategy. They, we, we always say in football, at the end of the season, the table doesn't lie. Well, what the, what the, the Brentford owner, uh, Matthew Benham said, is the table does lie. And, and they will be looking at metrics which will identify um, you know, the reason why they got rid of, of, uh, of, of their manager was they realised or that they, they concluded that he wasn't generating the, the, the additional gains that they were hoping to see. And that, that's the type of thing that they, that's the route they go down. And it's the same, you know, I'll be honest, I'm a Brighton fan. We've got an owner who's done exactly the same, where you spot talent through data analytics you bring it across you put it out on loan by having perhaps a a a satellite club and both brighton and brentford have got satellite clubs elsewhere in europe the player develops for the first 12 months at the satellite club they're then brought into the parent club and you know if if you look at mitoma you look at kaishado you look at McAllister. brighton paid 16 million sterling for the three of them and they, they could sell them for 150 so I think that that type of model, but it, it does mean doing the boring stuff. Yeah, it it does involve talking to nerds. Yeah, and I, Kian, I totally agree. I think you know any model needs smart people, and and I don't think there's necessarily you know a right or wrong model. Um, but but you need people who can 
utilize the strength of, of clubs, uh, see new possibilities, uh, you, you know, use new technology. You know, like Reynolds has, has done, you know, he's used what he's good at and he has transferred that to Wrexham and he's, you know, you know grown that club um, and obviously used some of his money as well. You know, so I, you know, I think there's, there's so many possibilities, but it's all about the right people with the right strategy that, uh, that, that can actually take the club uh, to, to a new level and, and use the money wisely. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's the, exactly the right word. Use it wisely um, in, in respect of, of Wrexham. They, they also have the benefit of the highest wage bill in, in the fifth tier of English football. Um, not everybody's going to have that, that benefit. Um, if it goes wrong, you end up with Everton. You know, so they, they, a new owner came in in 2016. They spent half a billion on players. Some of those deals didn't work out. And again, you end up with players on legacy wages who are happy to sit out the contracts because Everton were beating everybody else apart from the top six. And where can the players go under those circumstances? Because they've got families, they've got financial commitments, um, and therefore you know, they should be seeking to maximise you know, their return from their skill set and, and, and their, their professionalism. And, and why should they take a pay cut? But that's, that's the problem that Everton found. Kieran, thank you for the chat. Uh, for our listeners in Australia that might be uh, encountering your work for the first time, uh, we'll give you the floor for a plug. Where else can we see, hear or read more of you? Well, I, I do a podcast called The Price of Football. I, I do it with a, a stand-up comedian um, and we look at the, the finances of the game, um, all of the different financial stories right from the bottom of the game through to the top and... It goes out twice a week and it's called The Price of Football. And I've, I've written a book of the same name because I, I teach football finance, which many people will say is not a proper subject and it shouldn't be taught at university. But, but students love it. Kieran, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Gegen Pod. Soccer is icon Mark Schwarzer and former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen still with us in the pod. And unfortunately, Michael Bridges is in the United States of America and has been uncontactable via message. Mark Schwartz, the floor is yours. Jesse Marsh sacked by Leeds United. Bridges' man is no longer at the helm. All I was thinking was, poor Bridgie. He's in America. What about timing? It's all about timing, isn't it? And they decide to go and sack their American coach. How do you get out of that one? How do you explain to your American fans or the wannabe fans who have now just jumped ship because Jesse Marsh is no longer your manager? Um, yeah, I, look, I, no surprise, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, no surprise he's got, and not, not for any other reason other than results. There's 
I mean, the team just seemed to struggle. They've seemed to have hit a bit of a brick wall under Jesse Marsh for whatever reason, even though he's got, you know, three or four American players there now. Um, it just hasn't worked for him. And I, I, I'm, I actually have to say, I'm probably a little bit surprised he's lasted this long because I thought maybe... Uh, you know, even during the you know, end of last season, towards the summer, that maybe things would change um, because it didn't go very well towards the back end of last season. Um, so, yeah, unfortunate. No, never nice when someone loses their job, but it's no real surprise to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, Swartz. I think uh, it was coming, uh, certainly. I think uh, results, obviously. Uh, and also some of the comments that that's came out. I think he, he looked a bit defeated, frustrated, and um, you know when you see that happening, um, it's you know it's it's obviously not uh, ideal. And be interesting to see where they where they go from here. Um, you know, do they go go back to a, a former a former coach, or, or do they uh, you know do they go a totally different direction? You know, you got you got the sporting director, director of football, Victor Orta there, who's you know who loves the Bielsa, the high press, and everything else. Or or do they actually you know try to get someone in that that has a little bit of a different style because I think that's where Marsh struggled as well you know with you know with a you know he couldn't quite find that balance um and and probably lacked a Bamford in 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 good form as well a, a solid striker but yeah it'll be interesting to see where they go well Tommy the new manager odds overnight in Australia had Carlos Corberan as Evans favorite but he signed a new contract with West Brom today Marcelo Bielsa, Mauricio Pochettino, Ralph Hasenhutl, Rafa Benitez, even Michael Carrick, and of course, inevitably, Ange Postacoglu, all named in the mix. Who do you hire next at Leeds? No, like I said, Corberan, I think would, uh, you know, he'll be the, the the probably more direct. You know, he's been at the club. He was there uh, before he moved to Huddersfield Town. He's been around a, a few places. He was in Greece. Uh, now he's obviously doing a great job at West Brom. So, so he knows everything about the club. He knows probably a lot of the players as well. But, uh, uh, you know, will he move? And I think that's the, that's the big question for, you know, Michael Carrick has been mentioned as well, who's doing a good job in Middlesbrough. And, um, you know, who, who's, who's in a great position at, at Celtic. Can you actually pry those coaches into a dogfight at the bottom of the Premier League? Or, or do you go... You know, so I'm I'm more entitled to to think that uh, Pochettino or you know someone who's out of a job who's who's desperate to get back in uh, would take this on. Um, you know, so I think Pochettino is probably, you know, the the more likely in my view. But you know, who knows? I think it could go either way. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't see Corbyn leaving now. West Brom having signed a new contract unless unless there's something about the deal and about a transfer fee and maybe the only way it's going to work if there's a compensation fee for him to go and Leeds are prepared to pay. I I, I don't, I just can't see it. Bielsa, I mean, even Bielsa being mentioned is, is kind of, <laughs> kind of like, really? I, don't, I mean, look, who knows? Football's strange. But I, I kind of, I kind of think, you know, maybe a Pochettino, Ralph Hasenhutl, maybe, maybe, um, you just never know. I, I can't see Ange for the life of me leaving Celtic right now. I don't think. I don't think this is. It's all about timing for 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 Ange, and that's certainly for me not the right timing. I think he's what he's doing at Celtic is phenomenal, and I think he'll want to go if he ever if he ever does leave Celtic. If he'll want to do it the right way because of the rapport that he's building with the fans. Um, can't see it. I don't think Benitez would be a fit at all. Um, and just in the people that listed here, and I think I think Michael Carrick, you know what? He is doing an excellent job at Middlesbrough. I just again go back to timing. I don't think would be the right move for him right now. 
I think he needs to continue to to do what he's doing at Middlesbrough, and uh, and then see where he goes from there. Because I, I think for the fact that he's even mentioned is a credit to how well he's been doing so far in the championship and how he's turned Middlesbrough's fortunes around. And I just want to see him go for another probably another twelve months or so, um, learning his trade and and really trying to to hone his skills and and maybe do something special in championship and promotion, and then from that have another step up. Well, thanks to our friends at Opta, I can tell you that if you sack your manager while in the relegation zone, you have a 39% success rate of surviving over the life of the Premier League. Whereas if you sack your manager a couple of places outside the relegation zone, uh, for example, what Aston Villa did with Steven Gerrard replacing him with Unai Emery, then it goes up to 83%. So uh, acting uh, at the right time is crucial. Leads have waited until now. Let's move on to Liverpool and their issues. Jurgen Klopp, a meltdown, well, a, a, a gruff press conference, not a total meltdown. It wasn't Mourinho's respect, respect, respect. But uh, the cracks are well and truly opening up, Mark Schwarzer. Will he resign? And what can Liverpool possibly do from here with Klopp at the helm? Um, well, which, answer, which one do I answer first? Um, Cracks appearing. Look, has to. You, 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 the pressure has to be mounting. Frustration, pressure, all of that would be building because he'd be he'd be like beside himself in in what's gone wrong, how the team has crumbled, how it's fallen away, the players' lack of response in a lot of way. So many players out of form. Um, so many so many things going against him. He'd be thinking as well. Seven years, Dortmund, this. Um, and and I and and it's not nice to see. I have to be honest, you know, because obviously what he's accomplished at Liverpool has been absolutely amazing, and the style of football they've played. Uh, but to see him right now, they're a shadow of themselves. I look, I, I can't see them for the life of me finishing in a, in a Champions League position. Uh, I think at this rate, they'd be lucky to finish even in a European place. Um, I I don't know. I, I'd like to think. I think Liverpool's got a really big decision to make come the summer. And the decision will be, there's two, for me, there's two clear options. You either part way with a manager or you have a complete rebuild. And, you know, both of them are quite dramatic in some ways and in, in their own different ways. Um, possibly, you know, and I think it's anyone's guess which way it will go. But if I'm a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were going to put something up, I maybe would put on something like Klopp maybe coming to an agreement with a club that in they may they may part ways if it continues the same way between now and the season. Yeah, I don't quite agree with you, Sports. I don't think there's a there's a need for a total rebuild. I think uh you know, I think they've got plenty of players. I think definitely in the middle of the park. I think this season has shown that uh, you know, they are, you know, worn out legs there with uh, Thiago obviously Henderson um, but you know I think Jekyll, no, Jota coming back Diaz coming back you know Van Dijk is out I think the spine of the team in general if they can get a Bellingham you know get just get some youth some quality in that midfield in the summer I don't think they're far off um, but there is obviously worries that there's some tiredness um, you know that you can just see that the energy and the morale that, that Liverpool were so strong at, you know, in that area over the last couple of years, or at least the last five years on the club have, have veined a little bit now. You can just see they're, they're just crumbling. They look, <laughs> it just doesn't look the same team. And that's, that's the worrying part. And I think that's where the decision, has he, 
Has he has he has he is has he is he at the, his sell by date now or, or you know is there something that's not quite right there? You know that I think that's the big question because I think the squad is is good enough with a few additions. I, I but see the thing is I think the reason I say rebuild total rebuild the total rebuild is if Jurgen Klopp stays as manager because I I think it's about change of voice. There's certainly probably four or five players. You're right there that. It's probably they're not at that level anymore. They've dropped off. They've struggled. Maybe they need a change. I think if Jurgen Klopp were to stay, I think there's going to be. Well, I think there would need to be quite a number of changes because they need to freshen things up. Um, different players to hear different, you know, hear that voice, um, get a different response. Because at the moment, it doesn't seem like anything he's doing is is getting a response that 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 you're used to seeing from Liverpool players and a Jurgen Klopp side. Let's go right down to the foot of the table. There are already reports emerging that Southampton may sack Nathan Jones after only 13 games in charge. Thomas, uh, this has been a a desperate struggle for Southampton. It was an eyebrow-raising appointment. Do you think there's merit to this? Does Southampton have to act now before it's too late? I mean, I know we're in February, but the World Cup break means they do have a few more games up their sleeve than they normally would at this time of the year. Yeah, no, I think under normal circumstances, you, you would you would say exactly that. But but um, I think that press conference that Nathan Jones had, you know, totally killed that. You know, if I was in that dressing room and I heard my manager, you know, talk like that, um, you know, I think, you know, I would lose faith um, for sure. You know, just trying to blame everyone else around you, you know, that he couldn't play the, the style he wanted to play like he did at uh, Luton and... And and I think it's just a big bad excuse and trying to cover his own ass. And I think when when you, when you start to see that, uh, I think there's there's only one way. Uh, I can't see the players backing him. Uh, I don't think I would if I was if I was there. So sadly, uh, I don't think you know a little bit like what happened at Stoke as well. You know, just uh, worn out his welcome pretty quickly and. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's his personality or, or what is. Uh, and, and with the results not going great as well, I think it, I would be surprised if he's gone pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think when you start to make up excuses, you start to point the finger, push the blame to other people when you're the manager, you lose people very, very quickly. And, and I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think it's only a, a matter of when it's going to happen as opposed to if it's going to happen. I just don't see that changing. Uh, I mean, players will certainly have their ha- uh, hackles up now with, with what the manager's been saying. Let's leave the Premier League there and go to your latest activities, Mark Schwarzer. You caught up with Alu Kwol to talk about his life in Germany at Stuttgart and also the Puskas Award. That's going to be rolling out on Optus Sport channels over the coming week. What was that experience like and how was it catching up with Alu Kwol? It was really nice. Uh, Alu, you know, he's very, very chilled, very relaxed. Talked to him about, um, you know, uh, about his brother and about whether he's been to Edinburgh yet, which he said he had been a couple of times. Um, and uh, talked about the fact that obviously, you know, he got his made his debut in the in the, in the Bundesliga with with Stuttgart the other week. Um, what that was like, how excited he was uh, to make that debut, and then of course the, the Puskas nomination and the goal and. It was pretty funny, actually, because he talked about, you know, he was, like I said, he's like one of the most chilled men I've ever come across. And he talked about, you know, backheel uh, scorpion kick that he scored. And, and it was almost like, yeah, yeah, you know, I do it at training quite a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was kind of cool. And, and, and he was so, like I said, he was, he, was, uh, he was very, very good. It was nice to have a chat to him as well. 
Swatsy, how do you sense that his personality would will fit in in Germany? Because obviously you've been there more than me, but it always seems to come out that you know the Germans, you know, that's uh, you got to be spot on and your attitude and everything else. And if you're too laid back, is that going to hinder him or could it be an advantage for him? Um, it's more about the the discipline, right? So yeah. you know, I, I, look, I think the Germans are very much on the discipline as long as he's doing that, and I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure he is because otherwise he wouldn't be in and around the first team. Um, he did mention the cold and how he struggles with the cold. That's something he still hasn't gotten used to, which is understandably because it was freezing in Germany. Um, but uh, no, look, I, I think Germany's changed a lot as well. Um, we see players from all over the world now. Uh, it's a hub of young, really exciting, young, talented players as well coming to the Bundesliga, get given opportunities to play. It's almost a nursery of, of, of highly talented football players um, and breeding ground, and and they they develop them and utilize them as much as they can, and then and then they they upsell them. And uh, look, I I think Alu's in a great position. I think it's a really good league for him to learn learn the discipline side, learn the professionalism side of it, but also getting that invaluable experience playing first team football. Um, so no, I I think um, he's in a great place to be right now. And just lastly, gentlemen, Kevin Muscat's Yokohama F Marinos, the defending J-League champions, they are playing in the Japanese Super Cup against Ventforet Kofu. Can they win this game? And more importantly, can Kevin Muscat defend his J-League title? I am a little bit surprised that the prying eyes of Europe have not lured him away from Yokohama F Marinos, but clearly he's committed to coming back and trying to repeat as champion. You know, first of all, I think they're going to win the Super Cup. I think, uh, you know, he did a great job. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it came down to the wire, you know, even though they were pretty comfortable at, at a certain point last season. Uh, lost a few games late on, but held on and... Uh, you know, just taking over there from Ange, you know, just doing the same. I think, you know, if he's patient, he's going to get, uh, he's got to get an opportunity. I think he's he's a similar personality. You know, he's very charismatic. You know, I, you know, I played against uh, him as a player. I, I saw him when he was at Victory. And, you know, when, when we played with Melbourne City, you know, and, and he has that effect on his players. So he's, he's going to lift everyone. And, and you can see now, we look at the Premier League, we look at Dice, you know, he's come in at, at Everton. Right? These the ma- these managers will be in demand. You know, the players, uh, you know, the, someone that, that the players can, uh, you know, aspire to and attract to and, and can inspire them. Um, so for sure, he, he'll be in Europe at some point. He, he just needs to be patient. Yeah, I, I think he just needs to continue the work that he's doing. Yeah, can they win it? Yes, absolutely, they can win it. I think he's done. A, I think he's done an excellent job taking over from Ange. I mean, Ange, what Ange does very, very well whenever he leaves a club. He's he's one of those managers, and there's not many of them that leave clubs in a healthier state than when he first arrived. And the team's still intact, and for a manager just to take over and 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 add their own little bits and pieces to it. And I think Kevin Muskie's done that really really well uh, at Yokohama. And look, we we already see it. Ange is obviously doing incredibly well in Scotland with Celtic. Um, turned a 25 point deficit the previous the first season. Well, from the season. Uh, before he arrived uh, in in Scotland to winning the league with Celtic. And he's going to win the league this year again. I've got no doubt about it. Um, They're by far the best team in Scotland. And we see Paddy's Cusnorbo over in uh, in France. And I think it's only a matter of time before we get more and more. You know, Ange will eventually, I believe, at one stage, at some stage, take another step up again and end up either at one of the top leagues in the world. I really believe so. And again, it'll keep putting 
Aussie names, Aussie managers on the on the um, on the radar. And Muskie keeps doing his thing in, in in the J League and has another successful season. There's no doubt in my eyes either that he'll end up being in Europe somewhere at a, at a really good club. Thomas Sorensen, Mark Schwarzer. It's been a bit of a different keg and pod, but a very fun one. Thanks for your company today, and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, you. Cheers, guys. Yes, a big thanks to Mark Schwarzer, Thomas Sorensen, and earlier in the show, Kieran Maguire. The Premier League has a Thursday blockbuster when Manchester United host Leeds United from 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time and then at the weekend see West Ham versus Chelsea from 11.30pm then goal rush from 2am Sunday morning including Tottenham's trip to Leicester and Arsenal against Brentford. On Monday, it's Leeds hosting Manchester United from 1am Australian Eastern Daylight Time followed by Man City against Aston Villa from 3.30am. And there's a Tuesday morning match as well with the Merseyside Derby, Liverpool hosting Everton from Anfield at 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time. La Liga continues with a Saturday morning showdown between Cadiz and Girona from 7am and you can see Barcelona's trip to Villarreal on Monday morning at 7am. And the WSL continues with a huge contest filled with Matilda's stars kicking off at 11.30pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday when Manchester City host Arsenal. One of four live games, all exclusive on Optus Sport. Make sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and why not rate us five stars while you're there. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thanks for your company this week on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. You've been listening to The Gegenpot. Pod.